So if you jump to the first scripture, uh, Genesis 3, 8, verse, or Genesis 3, verse 8 through 12, it says this, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among them, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman, it's her fault. (laughs) That's really bad theology. Husbands, don't use that one. You'll be on the couch. The woman whom you gave to be with me, it's your fault, God. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Who said that you were naked? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. That's the next one we'll go to. I'll read it across the sanctuary this time. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Come on. One more scripture. I can't read it that far away. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the, It's always a, a journey when Connor's preaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? I can hear you guys flipping pages. This is awesome. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We're in this series on identity and I think we've hit some really, really good elements of identity. And actually this week, Ray Dean last week preached a sermon called The Shame Game. And I'm going to kind of pick up, uh, not quite leave that topic of shame, but really just come at it from a different angle. Because I think that one of the greatest things that the church struggles with is shame. Um, and I don't think we like to talk about it a whole lot. We kind of just want to put on a facade maybe and ignore it and kind of leave it behind us, but God really wants to set us free from shame. We're in a process where human beings, we struggle with sin, and we're working through that, and God is perfecting us, and I really believe that the standard that God has for our life is that we would be perfect. I'm not saying that you're not going to make any mistakes, and I know that you're in a process, as am I, but I don't look at my life thinking to myself, I'm going to continue to struggle with these things the rest of my life because I know who my God is and what he's done in my life and what he's trying to do. I believe that I am going to become perfect at some capacity, not in a self-righteous way to intimidate or condemn or to judge other people, but because I know that God loves me and he is good and he wants to totally set me free from the torment of sin. So we're going to go at shame one more time. Ultimately, so that we can be encouraged and continue to walk in freedom. If you're taking notes, you can write down the title, You Should Go and Love Yourself. Now, I got this title from the great theologian Justin Bieber. (laughs) And he, uh, 
in one of his commentaries, it goes something a little like, my mama don't like you. She loves everyone. <laughs> and you should go and love yourself. If there are any talent, if there are any talent agencies in the house today, I'm comfortable with my job, okay? I'm not looking to get into the entertainment industry. But I think Justin has a point. And I think really if we look at the scriptures, I think that more than anything that God has a point, that there is a place in the space and a place in our life and a place in our theology where we should love ourselves. And that's what we're going to attack today. Um, what I've learned about identity and what, have I, what I've observed about people in general, myself, and just anyone that I can observe, I'm a people watcher for sure. Just so you know, if you're talking around me, I can't help but eavesdrop. So <laughs> if, it's, if, if there's sens sensitive information and you see me, just walk away. <laughs> what I've observed in people is, uh, first thing, that identity is dynamic. We all have multiple things that we identify with and that we find meaning and value and purpose and we understand who we are through. Uh, it could be through your workplace, through your job, the reality, relational things like being a parent, being a husband, being a wife, being a friend, being a brother, all, all these different things. Uh, sometimes we find identity in the good things that we've accomplished and sometimes we find identity in um, maybe the things that we have not accomplished or the things that have been done against us. And what I've learned about people is it's really not so much that we have an issue understanding what our identity is, but more that we understand what our identity is in its dynamic way, and we just don't like the things that we identify with. I wrote in my notes that we hate the things that we identify with. Because if we're being honest, and we do put the facade of church to the wayside for a moment. If you're anything like me, there are probably things that when you look in the mirror at yourself or when you, not maybe even just necessarily physically, but when you reflect on who you are as a human being and where you're at in the journey and the process, especially if you're a Jesus follower and you know that God has more for you but you're still wrestling through something, you probably hate the very thing that you're wrestling through and you're probably your own worst critic and you take that out on yourself. And I think there are a lot of us who wrestle day in and day out with that torment because we hate the things that we identify with. Let me explain. Maybe it's this. Maybe you grew up in a poor family and you had a, a chance in life to make money. And you have become obsessed with the pursuit of making money because when you look at who you were when you grew up as a poor person, you hate the idea of poverty, and you hate the way that people looked at you for that. So you spend your whole life trying to chase monetary things so that you can say and you can find your meaning and your identity and your value and your worth in money. And it's not so much because you feel like you can steward money really, really well. It's because when you look at yourself in the mirror and you reflect back on your past and your own life, you hate the idea of being poor. Because to you, being poor is a person who is meaningless and worthless and can't contribute to society. And maybe it's not necessarily because you all of a sudden thought that up. It's probably not. It's because you, maybe you were nurtured and you were treated that way, and that's not necessarily your fault. But it doesn't really matter how much people nurtured you or treated you so much as it is because now it's just you looking in the mirror and you condemning yourself. 
Or maybe you're a woman and our society has told you that what it means to be beautiful is to be five, I don't know, seven, and petite, and have these certain characteristics and identifying things, and to wear your makeup right, and to wear really, really nice clothes, and you just have all this confidence and swag, and, and you don't look that way because 95% of women don't. So you think that you're not beautiful because of it. And when you literally look yourself in the mirror, you begin to hate yourself. It's not necessarily your fault, but that's the place that you've come to. So what we do is we cope with those things. Like I said, maybe you're, you hate the idea of being poor, so now you've chased riches, or, or you are that woman and you've struggled with that, or you're that man for that matter. Maybe you're kind of like me. <laughs> Here's the thing. I am... <laughs> I am not maybe a man's man, so to speak. Someone was like, Connor, you know, like, what's your role in the home? Uh, I give my wife advice every morning on her outfits. She hangs up the shelves and things like that. <laughs> you know, like, I grew up hunting for deals at the mall. Not your, not your typical North Idaho man. Right, Ryan? You know what I'm talking about. Come on. So if, if I think what it means to be a man is to go kill a bear and throw it over your shoulders and carry it home to your wife who's taking care of the kids and cooking you a dinner and that's what manliness means, when I look at the mirror, I'm like, whoa, hey. <laughs> and it could be really easy for me to be insecure and, and really begin to hate myself. So then I would begin to cope with whatever in order to somehow deal with those emotions. And what our, cult, our culture and our country has come to is we have begun to get into this cycle of coping because we uh, haven't addressed the elephant in the room that everybody deals and suffers with self-hatred and self-loathing because something inside of us identifies most with what we hate. And we cope with substances and we cope with money and we cope with food and we cope with all these different things. And now it's almost crazy. It's become culturally acceptable to cope certain ways. I mean, you think about reality TV, the number one form of entertainment on television in our country really is us coping with our self-hatred. Endorsing gossip and slander and this certain perspective that really tries to intimidate and to say this is what it means to be beautiful and this is what it means to be successful and everyone else who isn't that way, well, they're not on reality TV and they're, therefore they're not celebrated and they're not of as much meaning and value. But we keep watching it because it's okay. And I'm here to tell you it's not okay. And I have good news for you because this is what the scriptures say. In Romans 8, chapter 1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's the thing about guilt and shame and self-hatred and self-loathing. You have identified it primarily. Here's the crazy thing. You could be a pastor, a son of God, a man of God. But sometimes I most identify with the things that I hate about me, despite I know that I'm a son of God. And what will happen is I will sentence myself to the consequences of that condemnation. 
And a lot of us are imprisoned to those things. And again, we show up to church and we, we sing, it is well with my soul, and we do all that stuff. But no more elephants in the room today. Amen. We all struggle with this at some capacity, and we're going to deal with it right now. And this is the way in which we're going to do it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That word condemnation literally means damnatory sentence. So what Paul is saying is, regardless of the things that have been done to you, or the things that you have done to other people, you are not condemned to the consequence in the sentencing of those things. If you are in Christ, that word in, it's really interesting. I gotta pull it up on my phone, because it's too good to get it wrong. The context in which you can understand it, this is what one of the definitions was, of the contents of a writing, a book, which is to say this, that your story prior to believing in Jesus was a story of condemnation. It was a story of torment from the darkness and the consequences and the, the, really the, dead, the death of sin. But because of what Jesus has done, he has taken our place and we now identify relationally with him. Therefore, we are in him. Therefore, we are a part of a new story and the narrative has changed in your life. If you are in Christ, because here's what happens. As Jesus followers, we think when I'm good, I'm in Christ and God is for me and he loves me. But then when I make a mistake, now I, it's okay to feel guilt and shame because I'm bad and I've made a, mistake, made a mistake and I've now stepped outside the will of God. So what we do is we live between these two places like crazy people sometimes, totally tormented where it's like you're good for a moment, you feel like God's for you, life is good, you're smiling. It's almost like, yeah. And then, <laughs> and then we're, we make a mistake because we're human and we're in a process and now we think that it's like the world is coming to an end and I'm the worst person ever and it's like, I'm not justifying sin, but that's not the will and the, the life that God has for you. If you are in Christ, you've been taken out of one story, not because you're a really great author, so to speak, but because God is the author of your life and he has taken you out of a narrative of condemnation and death and he has put you in his story, a story of life and grace and love and mercy and freedom. And the narrative of that story, the silver lining all the way through is freedom and grace and love and mercy, regardless of the ugliness of it and the drama of it. It is that God loves you and that he's for you and that he sets you free and there is no condemnation for you. I heard a pastor one time tell a story. He uh, pastors a church in Hollywood and one of the young people in this church were really, really, really struggling with pornography. And he said, you know, I just can't, I can't get over it. I don't confess, which is a really good thing. He's just like, he was totally hopeless and defeated. And the pastor said to him, he didn't condemn him. He didn't tell him, yeah, you need to just get over it. He said this to him, next time you are guilty of that sin, just begin to say over your life, literally as you're in, caught in the act that you are the righteousness of God. And he was like, 
like most of you are like. <laughs> but that's the reality. Regardless of what you do, you are the righteousness of God. And if you can get to a place where you can really believe that, despite the things that you hate about yourself, if you can say, if you can identify those things that you hate about yourself, and in light of those things, you can begin to believe and say over your life, even if you don't believe it, but you can proclaim it. I am the righteousness of God. Those two things cannot exist together. That's why he said, when you're in the middle of your sin, say to yourself, you are the righteousness of God. Because you will identify in your flesh and in your spirit that these two things can't exist together. And you being the righteousness of God is so much better than that. If you can continue to believe that and walk in that, you will leave the sin behind you. Amen. Freely. When that woman texts you who's not your wife to hang out, just text her back, I'm the righteousness of God. <laughs> Hey, no condemnation to you, really. If you don't want to, there's a cost to that. And that's for you to bear. But you could make a decision, and I promise you, if you text her that, or if you're a woman, sometimes we paint men as just the adulterers. Sorry, guys. If you're a woman, and there's a man texting you, just text him, I am the righteousness of God. I, I promise They'll be like, bah, who is this? They probably won't want to hang out anymore. And that's okay. Or, or those people, they are trying to get you to gossip and slander about your coworkers or whoever. Just, you don't even know what to do and you're like really struggling because I get like you're in a setting where it's really, really hard and that's the culture and that's okay. That's not okay for you. You are still the righteousness of God and you are called to be in that space and that place so you can declare that not in a self-righteous way where you condemn others, but just in your humility, in your meekness, just begin to just mumble to yourself, oh, I'm the righteousness of God. <laughs> I, they'll probably leave you alone. <laughs> Like, this person's weird. <laughs> hey, if you want to walk in the life that God has called you to, you have to be different than the world around you. And primarily, that means that we no longer walk in guilt and shame and condemnation. Not that we justify sin. Read Romans. Paul's like, just because grace abounds doesn't mean you can go around doing whatever you want. There's a new standard because of grace. Not a life that we have to earn or live up to that just because we make a mistake, we're all of a sudden cut out from it. But God has more for you. And it takes discipline and it takes being weird sometimes. But if you can believe and understand that you're no longer condemned to the consequences of your sin and your brokenness and your humanity apart from God, then you can step into the crazy, adventurous, beautiful life that God has for you. And some of you are like, maybe like, Connor, are you talking to the non-believers today? No, I'm talking to the 20-year veteran Christian who's been struggling with this for 20 years. Today is your day. water break. <laughs> 15 minutes. Here we go. <laughs> Anybody read, uh, use Audible? They're like, 
you, no one reads Audible at like one speed, right? It's always like 2x or 3x because you're like, speed it up, speed it up. How many books can I get? That's America. Here we go. <laughs> I'm going to be at 1x the whole time, the rest of the way. Um, the, addressing this issue is super, super important uh, because... Our reputation as the church, as God's people, should be that we are the most loving, compassionate, merciful, generous, life-giving, encouraging people in the world. Like when people think about you or when they think about Heart of the City Church, they should immediately, the first word that comes to them is love or grace or compassion or, and just like, man, I don't, I'm an atheist and I go to Heart of the City Church. Not because I like J.O. or Connor or anything that they say, but because I feel welcome there. And there's just something about that place. If you are a Christian and you work in the secular world, there's no secular world. Everything is spiritual. If you are in that place, then the Spirit of God exists there, and it's moving there. And it's now become a world that was once spiritually dead, a space that was once spiritually dead, is now spiritually alive because you are the righteousness of God, and there's no condemnation for you, and you are in that place. But if you're in that place, people should come to you for wisdom and discernment and advice. They might not even know that you're a Christian yet or that they do. And they might not necessarily want to go to church with you yet because they're in a process and you have to trust that process. But because of the spirit that lives in you and the love that just permeates out of you, they'll come to you. Why are you such a good parent? I don't know. Jesus loves me. This I know. But our reputation should undisputably, undoubtedly be that we're, and that's, if we're honest, that's not the case. I know that there are people, when they hear my name, they maybe don't think that. There are people in this community, a lot of, we have a, such an awesome church. You guys are so awesome. But when they hear Heart of the City Church, there are some people who don't feel that way. Because we're flawed and we're in a process, and, but we're not going to condemn ourselves to those things. We're going to, right now, we're going to embrace as heart of the city church that there are people in this community that we have let down, that we've dropped balls on, that we have not been Jesus to, but we're not going to condemn ourselves to that because there's redemption to be had and there's a mission to embark on and God is going to do more through us than we could ever imagine. But if we're going to step into that, we need to leave the shame behind us. We need to address the elephant in the room and we need to move forward with more love and more grace and more mercy than we ever have before. That should be our reputation, love. This is what, I mean, Jesus says this in Matthew 22, two commandments. And when he says that all the law and the prophecy hang on this thing, essentially what he's saying is these two things are the most important, primary, first, and then everything else will come from there. Is that we should love God and love people. Jason, will you put that photo up? Oh, that was so quick, awesome. That we should love God. It is well with my soul. Until it's not. Right? 
until it's not well with your soul. We have to address this because if you're honest and I'm honest, there are moments where I don't want to love God and it is not well with my soul. And this is what I would present to you today. The reason for that really is not because you so much have an issue with God, but because when you think about God and then you look at yourself in the mirror, I'm looking at the man in the mirror, MJ, God rest your soul. When you think about God and then you reflect on yourself and you're honest about yourself, maybe because of a tragedy that's happened in your life or because of some decisions that you've made that were really ugly and really bad, you begin to question whether God is love or whether God could love you and then you stop worshiping God. Here's the thing. The law of giving is this, and this is important to understand this scripture. You can only give what you have. And this is what Jesus is saying. You need to, essentially this is it. You need to receive the love that I have for you. All of you. The ugly you, the bad you, the ill you, the abused you. You need to receive all of my love for you and then you just need to give it back to me. The reason why people come to this place, the reason why you and I at times come to this place where we don't wanna worship God is because we question whether God could really love this person and we don't receive love for all of us, which God has given. Hey, God doesn't love the good you any more than he loves the bad you. He just loves you. Parents, can you testify to this? When you look at your kids and they do crazy stupid stuff, your love for them is not any less now you're a human and you're broken and you're flawed. So maybe you do things that you wish you wouldn't have done, but that's not who God is. God is not broken and not flawed. And he loves all of us. There's a part of you that, that needs to recognize today, that part that you hate of you, the part that you loathe, the part that you are just crippled by and you've condemned yourself to, you need to say that God loves that part of me. And you just need to begin to declare over your life and embrace God's love for that part of you. Because if you don't, you'll be paralyzed in that place and God has more for you. You know, uh, the guy who wrote that song, It Is Well With My Soul, in uh, 1800s he wrote it. His son, was, uh, his son died of an illness, young son, one year. Two years later, him and his wife, well, he was a businessman. The business that he had in Chicago had fallen apart also in between the year that his son had died, two years later when his wife and his daughters had embarked across uh, the pond. Um, and on that ship, his four daughters died and his wife survived. And he wrote this song, It Is Well With My Soul, in response to that tragedy. Because Horatio, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, he understood that God was good and that God loved him and that God was with him even in that tragedy. Sometimes we question whether God could be with us in that tragedy or if God was with us in the abuse. Now God, 
I don't know why those things necessarily happen. And if you're here to find answer for those things, God is not a philosopher. He's your comforter. So I can't promise you that you're going to get answers for the tragedies that have happened in your life or why those things that happened. But I know that God was with you through them when no one else could be. And that his love extends to that place. And although you think that you're ugly and you think that you're battered and that you think that you're abused, that God doesn't see you that way. He sees you as redeemed and restored and his love extends to the depth of that place. Jesus goes on to say, love God and then love people. How many of you know sometimes that it's easier to love God than it is to love people? (laughs) Oh, man. Thank you, Lord, for the second commandment. (laughs) Sometimes we fall short in loving people. And this is the, the place that I've come to with that in my own experience When I fall short at loving people, because I do, um, the reason why, whether it's through like just frustration or anger or whatever the emotion is I feel towards them, is because I see something in them that I hate in myself. And I'm trying to shift the attention off of my own self-loathing to them. Because the reality is that I can only give what I have. And I haven't received God's love, not because God hasn't given it to me, but because I just simply haven't received God's love for the place in me and the space in me that I hate about myself. Therefore, when I see it in other people, in order to not be overwhelmed with self-loathing for myself, I try to bring the attention of that onto them, and I condemn them, and I judge them, and I cast out them. The reason why so many people who don't know Jesus, who are outside of the church, don't think that we're loving people is because we haven't been totally set free yet from the things that we once were and who we once behaved like and all those different things behind us. And we see that in them. So then we, can, we, can, we condemn them and we put the attention on their sin so that we don't have to deal with ours. And we stand in between people and God. We need to deal with this today. There's no, I'm not condemning anybody. I'm just saying you have things that you're ashamed of and we need to deal with them because God wants to use you to show love to the people in this world. Sometimes I'm like, God, just use somebody else. And he's like, no, I'm going to use you. Yeah. Because you don't get that I love even that part of you. And if you can grasp that, then you understand the depth of my love and then your life will look totally different. Here's how we can love ourselves: Two practical things. Um, just perspective changers. Um, Jason, if you'd put that first one up there. You guys tracking with me? Yeah, I know, guys. I'm so sorry. Just so you guys know, like, I got to keep it on my chin. Otherwise, I'm hard to hear. So the people in the media booth are always like, (laughs) I got a good chin. Here's what, what I found to be difficult when I think about my own self is, how do I, like, really love myself with the things that I'm good at and I'm gifted at without being cocky? And then how do I love myself the bad things 
the ugly things without being shameful or guilty. First thing, the good things. All that's good is a gift. You need to get this today. You are a gift to the world around you. Everything, you don't, I know, apart from God, you're wicked and whatever. So am I. But you're not apart from God. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And you are a gift to the world around you. I'm not awesome at this. I'm still growing in it. But this is when I have a good day, what I think about when I come to Heart of the City Church, when I'm really having a good day, I think, I'm a gift to those people. (laughs) When they experience Connor White, they're going to be blessed. (laughs) And it's not for like my, like, because I need to like justify myself and feel good about myself. But I know that I am a gift to you. Because I understand the love that God has for me. And I want to give that to you too. Because I know that you need it just as much as I do. And it's not mine just to hold on to and to take and say it's mine. But you need it. So I'm going to say I'm a gift to these people and I'm going to walk in that. (laughs) I was in Las Vegas a couple weeks ago. Sin City. And... uh, we got in this Uber, and all of our Uber rides took five minutes. We get in this one Uber, super, super awesome guy. His name is Didier, Britishman. And uh, we get in this Uber, and we're going to this place, and he's like, it's going gonna, it's gonna, to, there's traffic, it's going to take a little longer today. And I was like, oh, okay, you seem like a nice guy, that'll be all right. He's like, Man, it'll be 45, 50 minutes. I'm like, okay, that's fine, whatever, I'm just cruising. And uh, he begins to quote all these philosophers, super nice guy, very talkative, um, probably couldn't repeat some of the words that he said in church, but really nice guy nonetheless. Had a great time. He's quoting all these philosophers, and he's telling him how the universe was telling him stuff. And I'm starting to think, I don't think that this guy is a Christian person. I think he's probably agnostic or atheist. And so then he starts to ask about what I do. And like, he just wants to know who we are because he's a super, super nice guy. Some of you just need to ask people their story. You know, that could be some of the nicest things that you could do to people. Sometimes I encounter people who are not Jesus people, and they're way nicer than Jesus people. But he begins to ask me my story, and I'm like, oh, please don't ask me what I do professionally. Because this guy is, like, super well-read. And I knew that if he knew that I was a pastor and we started talking about God, he would run circles around me philosophically. And I just didn't want to deal with it. So for 45 minutes, I'm just sitting there like in fear. Don't ask me what I do. Don't ask me what I do. Don't ask me what I do. What do you do? I'm a counselor. Oh, who do you counsel for? A nonprofit organization. I should have thought, Connor, regardless of who he is or what he believes, And regardless of whether he can run circles around you philosophically or you have all the answers to the questions that he's going to ask that don't have answers, you are a gift to that man. You need to to embrace that. We need, I need you and you need me to walk in the reality that we are a gift everywhere we go to the people around us. Here we go. Moving on. Now we're getting 2x, 3x speed. Um, Second point, Jason, if you'd put it up there. Trust God to restore what is bad 
and to make beautiful what is ugly. You need to look at the part of you that's flawed and the, again, maybe it's abused or battered or you've abused and you've battered. And you need to look at that part of you and just say that God loves that part of me just as much as he loves the good part of me and that he is working those things out and he is molding me and he is pruning me. Here's the thing, if you're a parent, you know this, as a kid, you don't get it. When your parents discipline you, it's not out of anger or apathy or anything like that. It's not because they don't love you. It actually is because they do love you. And they need you to know that the things that you've chosen to do or the things that have happened to you are not what you were created for and you need to get back in alignment with who they have called you to be as a child. That's what God will do to us. He will prune us, he will mold us, he will shape us, but he is good and he is gracious and he will not leave you hopeless in your sin and hopeless in your struggle, but he has made a way out for you. And in that moment, when you see that person that you hate, you just need to begin to say to that person, you are the righteousness of God. You're in a process. You will overcome this. It says in Ephesians 2 that we are God's worksmanship, that he's crafting us and molding us, and that we were created and predestined before time for the good work set before us. You should have hope, friends, despite the fact that you're in a process and that God is working on you, that there is something ahead of you still, something to accomplish, a people to go to. And if you can get and it's not that, again, here's the thing. It's not, when I say you should go and love yourself, I don't mean, this is not like new age, just like self-love. Like just love yourself the way that God loves you. That's what it is. Just love your brokenness the way that God loves it. And understand that God has so much more for you but he's gracious while you're in the process. So, not many, so no matter how many times you mess up, his mercies for you are new in that moment. And you have a hope that you can move forward. Seth, if you'd come up. I wanna close with this. Genesis chapter three. It's a really beautiful scripture. Um, sometimes we have heard people say the God of the New Testament is different than the God of the Old Testament. And um, we see grace in the New Testament for sure all the way through, but we see grace in Genesis chapter three. I mean, we see grace from the onset, from the beginning. I mean, God is and was and forever will be. But in Genesis chapter three, we see Adam and Eve that have fallen and they're hiding behind this tree and they're covering themselves up. It says that they heard God and they were afraid and they heard him walking in the cool of the garden. Now here's the thing, when we read this scripture, you can't read this scripture apathetically towards Adam and Eve and say, because sometimes I'll be like, Adam and Eve, they're so dumb, like how could they possibly have done that, <laughs> you know? It's like, we are Adam and Eve. Read it empathetically. Like imagine like you being in the perfect presence of God and then making one mistake and being totally aware of the consequence of that and the guilt and the shame of that. Imagine what Adam and Eve would have been a feeling. But this is what it says. 
It says that God walks to them in the cool of the day. This is interesting. Listen to what one scholar said about that. He says, not early in the morning so as to express a hasteness to punish. Not the heat of the day as to insinuate a passionate anger. Not in the darkness of the night as to communicate the fearful expectation of death. But in the cool of the day, as if to say, though you did evil, I come in peace. Huh. <laughs> what? You have to know that in your moment of evil, I just began, as I've been reading that and thinking about that, I just began to think about myself and my, my shame and my brokenness, and I, I just began to imagine, this would be good for you to do if you can do it, just in my, myself in that garden, and just the feeling the cool of the day, and hearing Jesus walk, Jesus walks, that's the theologian Kanye West, But just hearing Jesus walking, knowing that it, it wasn't in anger necessarily or to come to punish me, but although I have done evil, that my God who is good and gracious and knows me by name and knows exactly where I'm at comes to me in peace. He also says this, he says, where are you? This is interesting. He didn't say, what did you do? Because he doesn't really care about what you've done. I mean, he does, but he doesn't. God is primarily concerned with where you're at relationally to him. He says, where are you? Not because he didn't know where they're at. Jesus wasn't like walking around the garden like, where are they? Can't find them. He knew exactly where they're at. It's a rhetorical question so that Adam and Eve could recognize, I am here. Because he knew that they were experiencing the shame and the condemnation that they were experiencing. And so he, what he wanted them to do was saying, I am here. And what he wanted, he wanted them to put it all together, that they're in that place, the place of evil, the place of guilt and shame and condemnation. And to know that he walks to them in the cool of the day as to come in peace, but also that he comes right where they're at. So that they, they could say and they could recognize, even though I'm here in this place, that my God meets me here. I wonder if you really believe, because here's the thing, because of what Jesus has done and where we're at in history, Jesus goes before you to your place of sin. You realize that? When you go to that place of sin in your mind or whatever it might be, Jesus has already gone there before you because he's already paid the price for that sin. And I believe what he whispers to you is not where are you, but that you are the righteousness of God and you can turn around and you can turn away from that sin because there is no condemnation and the narrative has changed. Where are you today? God meets you there in peace and there's no condemnation for you. And in this moment, we're gonna pray in just a minute. So prepare your hearts, because if you would agree with me in prayer, I believe that freedom supernaturally could happen in this space, in this place. He also says this. He said, who? They were like, we're naked and afraid. And he said, who said that you were naked? And this is why I felt like as I was praying about that, reading that, understanding that, that this is what God would have me ask you and what I asked myself. 
because again, we're at a different place in history and Jesus has done what Jesus has done. And I think the question for us today is who said that you are unrighteous? Who said that you were a liar? Who said that you were an adulterer? Who said that you were a victim? Who said that you could be condemned to those things? Not God. Hey, I get that people have called you that and I get that maybe you've done some stupid stuff or maybe some horrible, horrible things have been done to you. I get that. I'm not apathetic to your struggle and I'm not saying that the journey that you're in is not painful and hard and long, but it starts the healing of it and the restoration of it and the redemption of it starts right now where we begin to say that I am no longer condemned to these things, that I am not unrighteous, that I'm not an adulterer or I've not been cheated on, that I'm not an abuser or that I've not been abused, that I'm not a thief or that I've been stolen from, but that I am the righteousness of God. And there is no condemnation and my story and my narrative has changed. And I can be totally set free from all that shame. Who said that you were those things? Because God comes to you today and says that you are the righteousness of God. That you are and that we are his chosen people. Created for this time, for this city, to love God and to love people. But in order to do that, we need to go and love ourselves and to embrace all of God's love for us so that we can extend and give that love to the world around us. If you'd stand up, we're gonna sing this song in closing. If you'd give me just a couple more minutes. This is the, the, the time of prayer. I'm gonna invite the leaders forward. Leaders, if you wanna come forward, and if you're a leader and you're like, man, I, I need prayer, then don't come forward and wait till other leaders come forward. Don't check out in this moment. I know, we're gonna leave here in a couple minutes. But if you in your heart would receive what God wants to solidify that he's spoken to you in this moment, and you would just worship through this song, we're gonna sing how he loves. And I'm gonna pray for you. But that God would really, in this moment, he would heal you and totally set you free. So if you're here, to, here today, you've been struggling with self-hatred, there's something that you just can't break free from. You, there's just this shame, maybe no one else knows about it. You know about it, God sees it, and he wants to set you free from it. So if that's you right now in this moment, if you would respond however you would, I would encourage you to respond outwardly just because I, even though I know it's uncomfortable, something happens when you just raise your hands. Or if you, however you want to do, but if you would position yourself right now, I'm going to say a prayer. And if we agree together in the name of Jesus, I believe that God will do whatever God would do that only God can do. Do you agree with me?